In August 2021, the Department of Defense issued a mandate that all service members receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Failure to do so will result in punitive action and removal from military service. In the wake of that mandate, over 7,000 active duty service members, amongst thousands of National Guard and Reserves, have been separated from military service. Of those who stood their ground against the COVID-19 vaccine mandate, a large group represented by all services have banded together to fight back. On today's episode, I welcome Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Sonny Duncan, an F-35 operational test pilot and former Top Gun instructor that has helped lead the charge and hold the line for those younger service members who have not had a voice. This is his story. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Red Room Podcast. All right, brother, you ready? I'm ready. All right, game on. We're here in New Arizona. I'm here with a uh, fellow Hornet bro who's got a halfway decent resume. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just hit a couple bullet points off the resume here real quick before we get going. Sitting here with Lieutenant Colonel Scott Duncan, call sign Sonny. Grew up in Texas born, right? That's right. So Texas born. As soon as I could find where I put the resume. Jeez, way to fail. Like I just, it's not worth saying, I just bro. Lost, the resume is not worth I just, saying. I just lost, lost the resume. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right, we're back to the resume. Cool. So initially, <laughs> Navy enlisted nuke. Yes. Right? That's right. Navy enlisted nuke. Went to a year of school at, where did you leave after a year of drinking? Oh, so at Kansas State University. Kansas State. Yep. Got his quals uh, for a little while. Left. <laughs> went back to Oregon State University. Yes. Following that. Worked out a inter-service transfer to the Marine Corps, which we'll get to. Uh, following that, NA Associate of a Jenner flying the FA-18 Hornet, following mm-hmm. primary and advanced, all that stuff. Qualifications include landing signals officer, LSO, Naval Fighter Weapons School, also known as Top Gun, Weapons and Tactics Instructor Course, also known as a WTI, is qualified in the FA-18 Alpha through Delta, the F-18 Echo and Fox, as well as the F-16 Alpha Bravo Fighting Falcon. All right. Got some experience. Got to be as part of VMFA Marine Fire Attack Squadron 251 was the, among many of the jobs, was the pilot training officer. I think probably the highlight one. Yep. So senior pilot trainer of all pilots in the squadron. Two combat deployments mm-hmm. on the Enterprise, all right, which was busy. Yes, it was. Those were 2011, 2012. That's right. So busy in uh, Operation Enduring Freedom during that time. So it comes back from 251, goes to WTI, gets that patch, and then is uh, Top Gun after that, mm-hmm. but you got asked to come back. Yep. So got invited to come back to Top Gun as an instructor and was the surface and air, surface air counter tactics subject matter expert as a Top Gun IP. Following that, went to VMFAT 501 to learn to fly the F-35 Bravo. Yep. All right. Became a FRS instructor there. Assistant OPSO, OPSO, Chief Instructor Pilot, and the EXO. Then, 2019 to 21, and still currently, is the TAC Air Department Head and the F-35 Operational Test Director at uh, Marine Operational Test and Evaluation Squadron 1, VMX-1 here in Marine Corps Air Station, Yuma, Arizona, Sunny. Welcome to the Red Room Podcast. Hey, you nailed it, Susan. Thanks for having me, brother. Best, best I'm gonna, no, I'm going to give you the standard disclaimer, too. Uh, this will be my personal views and experiences, just like you hit through the resume. It will not be shared by the Department of Defense of the United States Marine Corps. All right, cool. So disclaimer out of the way, man. 
So, man, we're going to talk about this, and we had, we had covered kind of the basics, but for anyone listening, this will be a two-part series. So, Sonny, amongst a group of other service members, um, has elected to not take the COVID-19 vaccine. That's and, right. And that decision has led to a plethora of different things happening, and the process has been over 18 months now and counting. Yep. Right? That's right. So, we're going to talk about that, and the first part of it, it'll be two-part. The first one will be up into essentially recent history where things have taken a bit of a turn. So we'll talk through Sonny's story and then that'll be part one. Part two will be the most recent stuff and kind of current events, options, challenges, opportunities, things like that with regards to the DOD and service members and things like that. But before we talk about any of that, a little bit of background, man. So you grew up in Texas. Oh, you got it, Susan. Yes. So g- give us a little bit about the the Texas background. Oh, you bet, man. So it's actually funny. I grew up. Uh, so I grew up in Kansas City. We'll get to that in just a second. But I was born in Texas, Lubbock, Texas. So until I was eight years old, wonderful family. Yeah, we were the only immediate family to move out of the state. So all of my aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, they all still live in the Fort Worth area. So they're all in Texas. My father takes a better job in Kansas City, so we move up there. So from eight to eighteen, or basically enlisting in the Navy. Um, that is when, uh, we, I was more or less raised if you want to, uh, look at it in those terms, uh, up in Kansas city, but great family, uh, great family time, even there up in Kansas city, uh, wonderful place to, to be raised. Uh, even if you're a misguided young man, like I was uh, before I had to enter the Navy, uh, it was a fantastic place. Yeah. I could say that's background. I can speak to the misguided status <laughs> for sure, man. So why the Marine Corps? Well, it's interesting. Okay, so the Marine Corps came about after a few other pieces of the puzzle. So, um, well, first thing is my family's only history that I'm aware of from a military perspective. Now, uh, we've learned a little bit more as time has gone on, but it did not. It skips a few generations. It comes from the Navy. So my grandparents from the Navy, both my grandfathers, um, in different capacities, but that was my only, and I didn't know them well enough to know any of their history or background. And so when, when it came down to it, I graduated high school. I was, uh, I had, had different, uh, objectives in mind, if you will, went to Kansas state university, uh, drank for a year for the most part and, uh, drank myself right back out. And so when I left, I said, you know what, I need some discipline and I need to kick in the pants. And, uh, the way to do that, in my opinion, was going to be the Navy. So at that time, two major things were happening. One was the relationship with the Lord was just drawn on my heart. And the second was, uh, okay, I've got to go somewhere. I'm not mature enough to stay in this environment. And so I went to go talk to a recruiter, and he was actually uh, he was actually truthful, which is awesome. And he said, listen, man, I can get you in the Navy. But this uh, pilot thing, I, I can't uh, I can't figure that out for you. So I was like, you know what, man? I've seen Top Gun. If I could do one goal, shoot for one thing, what would it be? It'd be fly jets off of carry. He said, well, I can help you get there. So I ended up enlisting in the Navy, um, went in to boot camp. And when I was at boot camp, I also simultaneously uh, applied for a scholarship. And so when I got the scholarship, they said, hey, man, you can come or go. Um, we're, you got a few more months left, and we're going to send you off to Oregon State University. We've got paperwork here that says you're going to do that. So would you like to stay here and continue in the nuclear pipeline or would you like to leave? And so I said, no, I, I need the uh, I need the discipline. So I stayed, finished boot camp, did nuclear field A school and started nuclear power school and ended up uh, leaving to go back to college a second time. So uh, which was very beneficial. Had my head screwed on straight this time. Um, and that was actually so leading up to how we got to the Marine Corps. That's the first exposure to the Marines uh, was at Oregon State University. And we got to know some Marines, um, my wife and I, so now wife, at the time we were dating, very serious, and we knew we wanted to go uh, this direction with our relationship. 
And so we finally met some Marines. And I thought from a culture perspective that that was a much better fit for me personally and for our family. And she was not on board with that piece. So what, what was the difference in culture you noticed coming from enlisted Navy to Marine Corps now? Yeah, you bet. So uh, it's a good point because the funny part about my career is I've spent almost my entire career as a Marine Corps officer yeah, with right, the Navy. Yeah, right, right <laughs> yeah. boats around. Yeah, you yeah, better living, believe it. Living on a boat. And they actually did not have the same uh, perception. So when I was in nuclear power school, if you were, um, everybody was too cool for school. Nobody wanted to put an effort forward. And they actually viewed it in a negative light. So if you're motivated to be there and you wanted to do well, you were a standout, not necessarily in a good way. When I met Marines, they were passionate about being the best. And so I was like, you know what? And they were unabashedly that way. So I said, that is that is far more in line with our character. And then we got to know more and more Marines. And that's what ended up driving us to the Marine Corps from a culture standpoint. And you had said there was, uh, you know, the Swiss cheese a whole bunch of stuff worked out. Yes. Is this while you're at Oregon State? Yes. Yeah, so so actually, the Swiss cheese lines up and, and boom, you're you're flying hornets. It does. So I'll tell you the Swiss cheese piece, which is really funny. And uh, Jen tells it much better than I do. Um, but we're at Oregon State. She finally meets some some family members, some Marine like Marine families. Because again, their staff sergeants, their gunnies are there. Um, and so she's like, okay, I, I think I see what he's saying. But you know what? It's, it's enough for a family member to be in the military period. Marines just go off and die. I'm not. I'm not on board with that. I said, okay, you know what? That's fine. I got it. Um, you you're know, just like go and die. exactly. Like you just go and die. You just go it. and die. And so, you know, because the military is brand new for all of our parents, and nobody has an experience with it. And so, um, I said, all right, I understand that. Our hearts were not at one accord with that decision. So we said, we will pray about it, and we'll come to a conclusion at that point. So we spent the next three years at Oregon State praying about it. And she was not on board. And and that's not a hit on her. We finally go to uh, Pensacola to start up flight school. And unbeknownst to us, so you're there for six months. We have a six-month wait. Everybody's waiting. Everybody's doing odd jobs. Um, but we're also pregnant with our first child. So uh, we have an appointment. And they're like, hey, we've got to have all of our API students come to the chapel, 8 o'clock, whatever this is, Wednesday morning. And Jen has an appointment at the hospital. And so I was like, well, just ride with me, hun. We'll go to the, whatever this meeting is. It's supposed to be 30 minutes. We'll leave the meeting. We'll go to your appointment. We'll go back home. So we go in and do that. We park, and she is watching all these Navy ensigns come in, like putting their uniform together, putting them on as they're walking in. They're late. Marines she had seen go in in uniform, looking good. And we had, had just moved to Pensacola to Whiting Field. And so we had neighbors that were Marines. She's finally starting to see. Kind You're of what still we're in the Navy. About. Still in the Navy. I'm, in a, I'm a Navy ensign. Okay. Have not started flight school yet. And so finally she says, when I come out of this meeting, she's like, I get it. If you want to be a Marine, you, can be, you have my full blessing. Now, the funny part is in that meeting, there's 300 too many or 300 pilots in the chapel. The Navy leadership says, listen, man, there's 200 too many of you. We need to get rid of 200 of you right now. Out of the Navy, too many pilots. We selected too many. So it doesn't matter where you came from. You can, we'll give you a golden handshake right now. If you came from the Naval Academy, we'll make you a civilian in three days. They said, we did this a decade ago. When we did it 10, 10 years ago, what we did was we passed out 300 envelopes. And 100 of them said, you can stay. And 200 of them said, thanks for your time. You shitting me? Nope. So the cool part is, is there's two pieces to become a Marine. One is the Navy has to let you go. And the second is you've got to get into the Marine Corps. So literally the same morning. So again, it's, it's a God thing. And the Swiss cheese is going to line up even better here in just a minute. She, I come out of this. She has no idea what's happening in this chapel. I have no idea why we're even there. We come out and I go up to the guy and I'm like, listen, you're telling me that I can leave the Navy right now? 
if, if you're going to, you're going to let me go. And they're like, yes. And I said, listen, they said, well, you're not, you know, you're an engineer. Like we're not, you're not the kind of person we're necessarily looking to get rid of. However, like we, there's nothing we could do. Our hands are tied. And so they said, yes, if you want to leave the Navy right now, we will let you out of the Navy. So I said, well, that's half the equation. Uh, so what they ended up doing is 20 people took the golden handshake and left. They said, whoever's left, you have to stay and compete for your pilot spot. And what we're going to do is we're going to start the bar at 90%. And every class, that bar is just going to raise based on the performance of the people. And if you don't meet that metric, you go away until we get the 200 gone that we need to eliminate. So hang on real quick. So yeah. the, this was just the Navy at the time was just trying to cut people. That's correct. Had they mentioned a jump to the Marine Corps was no, an option? Nope, it's not an option. So the funny part about this is uh, I walk in. So I well, so we have Jen's doctor's appointment. So while I'm going to Jen's doctor's appointment with her, about four other guys went over to Matzig and they, they walk right in the door in their Navy uniform and they say, "Hey, if I fail out as a Navy guy, can I become a Marine?" So they get they get kicked right out, right? So I'm coming after lunch with my wife after just you know, so and I come rolling the door number five <laughs> and they're and they I don't get, even let me yeah. speak. Yeah, they're like, uh, "You, we've had four of your buddies here. You can head on out <laughs> the other direction." So uh, I said, "Listen, man, I don't know what those guys said." Um, but I'm serious enough about this that if it means leaving flight school, I'm happy to do it. We want to be a Marine. That's all there is to it. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, if you're serious, you know, come back tomorrow, run a PFT, da, 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 all stuff. Well, what I didn't know there either is, so I come back the next day, run a PFT. We start looking at, uh, board packages, how to put a package together. Cause in their service transfer is a, is a year long process. Yeah, It's not quick. It's not quick except for in this instance. So in this instance, it is literally that week. At the end of the week, I meet with the Matzig CEO as a colonel. And he sits down with me. I've already had this other lieutenant colonel help me with my package that week. And the colonel's like, are you sure you want to do this? It could mean all these different things. Like you're here at flight school. You know, we could, you know, bottom line is, is this what you want? And uh, we said, yeah, this is what we want. What I did not know is that Friday, he gets on a plane and goes to Quantico that colonel is the head of an inter-service transfer board that's happening next week. So he goes in Monday morning, puts my name on the top of a package that has 10, and so like, there's number one of the 10. Now, the funny part is, is the inter-service transfer was meeting because the Navy had jet scores on some of their graduates, and the Marines did not have enough guys graduating, so they needed jet pilots. And so, or uh, I'm sorry, they needed helicopter pilots at the time, actually. So they were going to do an inter-service transfer from, as a Navy ensign, flying helicopters to Marine Corps flying helicopters. And some there was some conversation about jets, too. And so when this came out, it was an inter-service transfer for helicopter pilots. And so our name was on that list. And so we thought, starting flight school, that we were already committed to helicopters. Boom, helos. It did not matter whatsoever. <laughs> but it was all of that that happened. So literally, so Susan, I go to API. Oh, I go to the API. The amount of luck that is happening well, so far. I'm with you, and except for the fact that I would say, you know, I would obviously chalk it up to faith. Um, but the, the the point that you're you're saying is just, it's hysterical, man. I go, so I compete for my uh, Navy pilot spot because I have to keep it. I get through API and literally change uniforms and go from API to uh, intermediate at the time flying T 34s. And there were guys who were like, man, dude, I could have sworn there was a guy that looks like, do you have a brother? He looks just, just like you. He's a Navy guy. Navy? Oh, yeah. 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 So that's it, man. And we've never looked back. It's been awesome. Dude, that is, I mean, I've got a significant amount of good luck in, in, <laughs> yeah, my, yeah. in my back pocket. Sure. Sure. That, uh, it's pretty amazing. So did, did the Colonel tell you that he was on no. the inner service transfer we board? Had, we had no idea. 
No idea. He just is like, I got this dude that yep. is serious about this. Yep. No kidding. So a list comes out with 10 guys and our so names a, on that a, list. a year long process took you seven days. It, that's exactly right. Jeez, dude. That's exactly <laughs> It's a it's a magical what the Marine Corps when it really wants to do something, you know. Yeah, and we'll, maybe we'll get into that. Little no, you're later, right, bro. Susan. You're right. Uh, awesome, man. So, all right. So you got to be a Marine. So let's get into a little bit of fleet life. Okay. So you finish up the rag at Oceana. You're flying Hornets, and when you got to 251, what year was that? So 251, we showed up in 2008, July of 2008. Okay, was, and I showed up uh, 2010, so two years later. Yep. Okay. And so I, I was. You know, trying to not crash a T forty five while you were just getting, you know, doing the to, same. The, to the Hornet. You know, <laughs> how was the two fifty one culture and just the fleet life? Yeah. So uh, when you guys first got to Beaufort, yeah, that's a great question. So we we wanted to go there. Um, we wanted to go to Beaufort specifically, and two fifty one even more specifically than that. At the time, uh, I actually was there uh, with another. I forgot what they call them, a Category 3 or Category 4 pilot. Uh, a couple of them, actually. They were coming back for requalification, and they were going to go to the checkerboards. And then they were like, no, we're going to go to 251. They said, we'd love to have you come down with us. And so uh, I got to do the FRS with them to some degree. I got to go to the boat with them. And so as soon as we graduated out of there, I came to 251. Now, the culture in 251 was phenomenal. Um, now, I don't know that every other squadron looked at us in the same way. Obviously, we looked at ourselves. Every... I would hope that everybody is like our culture was the best, <laughs> and you guys sucked. Uh, you know what I mean? And I think that's large by large. Well, there case. was uh, there was some good checkerboard T bolt rivalry. Oh when, yeah, when were. I was the checkerboard. Oh, very good. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Some, there was there was some stuff, some paintings, and you know things like paintings that. Paintings on walls. The yeah. dog that went on deployment with yeah, us. Yeah, like, dog. Yeah. <laughs> the full that made the deal. cruise video. It made the cruise right, video. Right. We're getting we're getting no, off track. Yeah, no, all but right. no, but so for from a culture standpoint though, Susan, the guys. Uh, and actually, if you ask Jen, uh, she has a special love in her, in her heart for 251. And it's because the guys and gals there were phenomenal. I think, you know, it was a single seat squadron. It was a boat squadron. Uh, the ladies were all at a very similar time in life, um, having young children. And were there as a huge support network while we were gone on all of the workups, all the deployments. I mean, we, I think Jen cataloged it one time. And she was like, you were gone. You were physically out of Beaufort for three of five years during that first tour. And so that was important for her. But that, from a culture perspective, we had fantastic guys. We had guys that worked hard and they played hard and they were serious about flying the airplane and not flying it, well, serious about fighting the airplane. And because of that, it just drove a culture of guys being very good, very talented and wanting to be the best that they could be and ensure that they were making other guys as, as the best they could be as well. Was there a, because I, I think this, and I'm of the opinion that your first squadron, the leadership style and the culture has an impact on you. It yes. can be positive or negative. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. But I think when you show up to the fleet, I mean, it's the real world. This is the show. This is the game. Yeah. And you're like, this is real life. It's no longer just studying, you know, occasionally flying and partying. You know, it's, yeah. this is, you have a job. And now this airplane is going to be employed with live bombs. Yep. And everything else. So yeah. it's, it's the real deal. So the fact that you had a good culture and a good squadron for a first impression, I think is it sets up dudes to have an advantage. I think that's a big player. I think you're absolutely right. Susan. So um, I'm going to come back to this. Okay. When it come, as we kind of get more closer to where we are currently and yeah. kind of leadership styles and things like that. Well, I think your point though, Susan, real quick, and I apologize for interrupting. No, fire away, man. No, the huge part about that that you're mentioning is uh, my career or anybody else's uh, is by and large, in fact, it's almost exclusively a product of the people that poured into it. And so when you were with the right people, like you said, you are absolutely set 
on the correct path. Yeah, I totally agree. I got a quick sidebar. When I checked into Second Tanks, yeah. a buddy of mine, King Lots. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Arthur King Lots the fourth yes. PhD upon him yeah. per Macaluke. <laughs> yeah. uh, shout out, King. Well um, done, Susan. Well one of my favorite call signs ever. So he was at 2-2 for doing his fact tour when I was at Second Tanks. And I, I'm not going to – it's unsanctioned, so I can't speak for Kinger, but he had a different experience during his fact tour than mine. Yeah. Uh, I met my battalion commander day one. And he comes up, and I'm the only, you know, wearing the wings formation in the morning. And so he comes up, and he's like, hey, Susan, you know, would you fly? And uh, I was like, Hornets. He's like, oh, I fucking love Hornet guys. I was like, oh, awesome. He's like, yeah, my Hornet, I had a Hornet fact in Fallujah. Mm, so yep. our battalion commander, second tanks, was Charlie Company commander, first tanks as a captain, Fallujah 2004. Oh, wow. So you know yeah. the history of Fallujah. Yeah. Is oh, yeah. Iconic. So day one for me, with that 10 second conversation, he just smacks me on the shoulder, big smile, walks away. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. And my tanks experience, just based on that initial interaction, that first, you know, you know, meeting the CEO, gosh, you want to talk about hitting the ground running and just, it's just a boost of motivation to get things going. So kind of sidebar story, but anyway, that was a major player in yes. the role I played as a fac at tanks. And yeah. also, uh, you know, when, when you want to, when you bring somebody into the fold that how you treat them, yep. you know, that first interaction is a big part of one, their motivation to be part of that fold, whatever it is, but also just hey, basic human decency and Hey man, welcome to the team. Yes. Kind of thing. Yep. And when he was like, Oh dude, I love Hornet pilots. I was like, yes. That's all, no, <laughs> it's is, huge. This is, is going to be a good year. So, well, it's just like you talked about Susan, that, that, that will absolutely form you and that will inform your leadership style. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Totally. Yeah. So that was a busy tour. So you did, you went to Top Gun. Yep. So yeah. In fact, from a, if we do it, kind of address it linearly, I got there. There were a couple other young guys that I was there with, which were awesome. Um, some of the best, uh, and I know many guys that you know. Um, so I got there, and we had a little bit of a delay until we did workups. And then we did workups, or started workups, uh, really the uh, stuff that's not done on the boat just yet. And I went to Top Gun after being in 251 for a couple of years. And so I went there as a student, was fortunate enough to get an invitation to come back. And so really the last three years of that tour, we knew kind of the path going forward. Um, I did get an opportunity to go to landing signal officer school and become a, a CAG, or sorry, a wing paddle, excuse me. Just, I mean, just awesome, awesome experience around the boat wholesale. And then like you mentioned at the end, which WTI and then went off to go teach at Fallon after that. All right. So that was, that's busy. Two combat tours and you guys did, it was, it was a cruise and then three months off cruise again. Uh, yeah. So not, we had a little bit more than three months, but we surged. You bet. Yeah. So the enterprise came back in They're like, listen guys, we got to get this puppy. It's only got so much life left in her. So uh, they brought it back in and we did about six months. We almost, um, 50% of the ready room went away. We got brand new guys that came back in, which they were phenomenal guys. Uh, but that's a challenge in and of itself. And so we bring them in and so it's like, it's the perfect place, uh, to be a, a training officer. I remember, uh, when that, before your second cruise, so yeah. we had a dude in the checkerboards who was airborne. We're at 29 Palms and I'm on the duty desk. We get a phone call from Beaufort. So we're on 29 Palms, you know, supporting, gosh, it was EMV at the time. Yeah. I don't know what it's called now, but they're like, Hey, captain so-and-so needs to come to Beaufort cause he's going to 251. And I was like, well, when? And there's like tomorrow. Yeah. So he's airborne. This yeah. dude's airborne, right? Yeah. So the CEO at the time, uh, you know, he gets on the horn and they, you know, you see the opso and the XO and the CEO all running around and they're like, okay, well, so-and-so is literally having his last flight 
right now. He doesn't know it yet, but when he gets back from this flight, we're putting him on a bus to San Diego, and he's flying back home to Beaver because oh, he just wow. got traded. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and awesome. It was right when you guys are you, know, you lost half the squad. Yes, and you're basically whoever's available with experience and a good. De- hey, I, it was. Um, anyway. Uh, not to mention any names, but uh, I that know, was, that I was know uh, exactly who that, that was Metro Bursay. Oh, was it? Oh, <laughs> I was, I was, I was somebody else. Okay, no, that's <laughs> no, good. No, no <laughs> that was shit. He was airborne, and we, did we hosed him down at the jet when he landed. Oh, that's And he awesome. was like, what's going on here? And like, dude, you got traded. Congratulations. That's so, Oh, man, Shane's uh, a great guy. He's awesome. literally airborne. So um, so that deployment, so those two cruises, yeah. so LSO, two cruises. Was there a big, and again, this is something I want to connect later on. Yeah. Was there any big lessons learned you took away from your first tour of 251, specifically the deployments, flying in combat, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, you bet. So one of the biggest lessons learned, and it kind of feeds into a little bit of the leadership philosophy, I saw firsthand what it was like to set the example. And my commanding officer started from the very beginning. Back to the culture you discussed, we did not tolerate things that were not done the right way, at least in our opinion. And so uh, setting the example was huge in servant leadership. So I saw firsthand someone who was like, listen, I, I'm, I want to see nothing more than my Marines and my squadron succeed regardless of the impact it has on me. And I saw that firsthand. So that was something that, you know, we were already familiar with, but when you actually see it in that intimate of a, of a setting, that's tremendous. Uh, other lessons learned, you know, uh, plenty of lessons learned uh, on the platform. I'm sure you had the same. Uh, in fact, one of my most memorable events um, was uh, having, there was a gentleman that had a night in the barrel uh, at least most both guys know that term is like, Hey, you just have a bad night. And it's like, <laughs> man, we got to get this guy on yeah, board. Yeah. And uh, man, he was in a prowler. And he's got three other guys with him in that airplane. And uh, it was several hours that evening to get him back on board. And I'm so glad we did. And so just as far as how that goes, you know, you can hear it in his voice. Like, you know, and I'll, I'll maybe mention so this for some of your audience. a little, uh, like, kind of break that down. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I night think, in the barrel. Yeah, so the night just in the start, barrel. Paint the picture for that. Well, so nights, of the, like, you know, um, recovering back to the ship. Uh, there's a reason why they call it uh, the boat and uh, or the postage stamp, and that's because, especially in a black night, like you know, you're looking on a lit landing area, and it is very small. And by way of perspective, it's tiny, and that's the only thing that's out there. So you have everything fighting against you from uh, all the physiology that's just messing with your head, and it can really get you to a place that it's a tremendous challenge, and you have to mentally claw yourself back out. And you can do it with a team. Um, so in this case, we had somebody that's coming down, and you know what? He's doing the best he can, but he is not able to overcome some of those challenges. And then what added to the uh, difficulty is the Prowler, and we had our entire LSO team go to every single CMS, get in the cockpit, look and see. The Prowler is way more challenging than the Hornet or the Super Hornet or the E2 behind the ship. So we had some appreciation for what he was trying to do, even if it was at night, that it is much more difficult to fly. Um, and he's also got uh, a lot more folks in the airplane too with him. Yeah. So he comes down at night. Uh, first pass was not great. And, you know, we're back there on the platform, landing signal officers on the platform, on the radio, uh, talking to the pilot to help him come on down. So the first pilot, we're like, well, okay, the first pass, it's not normal. He's a uh, more experienced gentleman. So um, it was something that was not his trend. And we knew that. So we thought, okay, there may be something up. Comes back around for another pass. Not a good pass either. Uh, ends up having to go back around. And then he starts a series of bolters. And then the prowler specifically had a hydraulic issue that would not lock the hook down. So hook skips were very prevalent. So then he went through a hook skip or two. And then now we're talking about, okay, we can't get him aboard. Even though in those cases, he's doing everything right. 
he had overcome the mental challenge of the night in the barrel. This is just adding to it because now he can't get, and he's doing everything right. So he gets up there um, after a couple of those hook skips where literally he lands, the hook bounces off the deck and bounces over all the cables. Um, so he has to go back around. He had to fly, get, uh, get gas airborne. So we launched an airborne tanker. He had to do that, come back around. Um, and because he's got to reduce his uh, gross weight or he's got to, you know, uh, dump gas out of the airplane in order to be an acceptable landing weight. So he doesn't have a ton of time. He comes back around for three more tries. We get another bolter. We get a couple more hook skips. And so he's back up to the tanker again. So it just took, um, it took several passes for him. And I'll never forget finally getting him down, finally trapping, finally bringing him aboard. I think it was on the 10th or 11th pass that he finally made us two trips to the tanker finally on he's trick-or-treating the last one. in other words he's at a fuel saver he's like if i don't make it again I'm, I'm back up to get the tanker he's he's coming off of a six to seven hour mission already so now it's it's we're approaching nine to ten hours in the airplane um it's it's significant and so but being there uh to help reassure him and to uh help call and just to to be that participant is uh is probably one of the most memorable experiences we have on the ship what was the, because that is a, we could pick that apart. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just that you bet. You and, bet. and the the psychology that goes into the role of the LSO. And yeah. I, I did a whole, actually, a whole episode with Barf Byers about the psychology and kind of the paddles factor, the culture, but the. Well, Susan, you were one of the, you were one of the best ones out there, buddy. So ah, dude, I just, try, that apart all I did was try to sound cool. That was it. Just, <laughs> that was like rule one of LSO school is like sound cool. Um, but no, the, you know, when you know the dude. Yeah is you've been there and he's what he's going through and the amount of stress that happens and the postage stamps when he was talking about the runway is 800 feet long yeah and it's moving away from you at an angle sometimes going up and down and it's dark (laughs) like it's it's such it's so fun uh (laughs) i say that with dark humor oh that's great but that the when you know that guy's going through that or or a gal honestly Mm -hmm. either you got three dudes in the back and you know, what, what the feeling is like when you bolter. Yeah. What the feeling is like when you fly a great pass and the hook skips. Yep. What the feeling is like when, you know, take your pick. Any any circumstance that you can't control happens and you are like, shit, I got to go do this again. Yep. And then you're hitting the tanker for a first time, yeah. for a second time. And yeah. then, and it's still dark. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like six hours till sunrise. Yep. But the, what do you remember thinking at that time? At the time, I remember thinking, um, to be totally honest with you, I thought we were going to have to change the approach after a while. And so I remember thinking, I don't know that he's going to be able to overcome this. And at the time, uh, the implication, I cannot remember if it was Blue Water Ops. For some reason, I think that it was. We were certified to do that, which means there's no other option. You're landing here or you're going to pull up aside and you're going to have to eject out of the airplane. Um, and I remember thinking after, especially after the third round, again, he was flying wonderful passes, and it had nothing to do with him at that point, and he knew it. So I think the good thing is, is one thing I saw was that man, like in the t- in a time span, you can hear in his voice, like you knew. Uh, as, 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 as much as you want to say sounding cool, I mean, that's a big deal because then it comes down to it's confidence, yes. and it's a bunch of other things. And yes. if, you, if you are confident and you're talking to somebody behind the ship who's having a hard time, they're confident. It calms them down in a heartbeat. Yes, calm breeds calm. That's exactly right. And so because of that, um, he was he. I literally watched him go from, I'm confident, I'm having some challenges, I'm questioning my ability to right back to confident, and in a matter of a couple of hours and ten to eleven passes, 
And, and just, again, not, because then it's the calm of, you know what, guys, we're doing everything we can. We're doing the best we can. I think I can do this for a few more hours. And at some point we may have to change the game plan, but it was, it was just like that. It was not, it was not like I'm freaking out of, Oh, what's going to happen. And then he's, he's in the back or he's in the airplane with three, three guys that are along for that same ride. And that is, so to, to see that transpire and to talk to him below deck after that, yeah, I was going to say, was what is it? Well, you're walking the ready rooms with he the came paddles. In, he came in and he just, you know, and we had all been there, right? Yeah. Everybody, for the most part, had had something like that. Whether they trapped and their legs were shaking so bad they couldn't even clear the LA, like that kind of, or the landing area, that kind of thing happened routinely. And so he was white as a ghost and he was there with his, his in fact, every ECMO was right there to listen <laughs> the whole, to the, the pass. <laughs> and then we took an hour to read and then we read every single pass. And, uh, but I'll never forget. I mean, he's a family man. He's got a wife and kids. And, um, it was, it was, um, it was one of the, I guess, um, it was one of the most joyful occasions I've ever seen on board ship. Now he, he was still, like I said, he was still, he looked white as a ghost and, uh, they, I think they gave him one day off and then he was like, it's time to get back on it. <laughs> you sleep in. it well, like, yeah. you know, though, Susan, you can't like the worst thing that we could have done for him is let him mull over it. He had to get right back on it and make it happen. Yes. So, all right. Again, we're going to get into the what we're supposed to be talking about here <laughs> shortly. But again, this is a, this is a boat yep. story. You talk about mulling over after yeah. a dude has a rough go. Yep. What's the best way to approach that? So the you best know, and, oh. and you know, some people think, "Oh, give him give him 2 weeks off, let him not fly for a while." That kind of thing and I'm of the exact opposite mindset. Yes. And it's you know, to to reference the 1986 fictional documentary about Tomcat pilots in Miramar, California. Sure, you sure. Know, get him back in the jet. Get him back yes. in the jet. But we had a uh, again. This this the story will. This is anonymous, so this may or may not have happened. Um, we had a senior officer on the same flight. Okay, so he's taken off on. Uh, he's going to go do a yo-yo pro. Yeah. All right. So I'll, yep. I'll break this down. So it's a good deal. He's going to take off from the ship, go fly for 15 minutes, join the case one stack or just join the case one pattern and come in and land 15, 20 minutes. It was a pro Charlie in the Hornet. So 15 minute flight, right? Yep. Well, we had a guy who was doing a single DCA separate guy, right? Well, they had coordinated like, Hey, well, instead of, you know, me doing the OEO pro, I'll just meet you up. We'll do some BFM. Okay. So <laughs> this gets, this gets ridiculous here shortly. So, <laughs> This all good deeds. This all individual good takes off. All right. So do you remember cat one, two, three, and yep. four. So different turn clearing turns. Yeah. So one and two go right, three and four go left. So he gets shot off cat two, which he's supposed to turn right, oh, and no. he turns left. Uh, while another is a rhino uh, is coming off cat three. So they have a there's a near midair, you know, two hundred feet from the ship. Uh, you know, mini boss is like, yo, dude, <laughs> hey man, other way, <laughs> other, other right. And uh so okay, so near midair, right? So he's supposed to go back, join the case one pattern, come in for the, you know, do his pro Charlie. So he does his pro Charlie, but instead of coming back for the case one pattern, he meets up with a one a fellow bro. Yeah. And they yeah. start doing high aspect. All right. BFM dogfighting for anyone listening. And but they're waiting for him on the deck. They're like, hey, where's so and so? So they call oh, the they yeah. call the ready room. Yeah. Hey, uh, where's he at? We're like, well, we 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 can't reach him, man. Like that dude's gone wherever he's at he's doing something <laughs> so the wait, the deck is still open oh and you know how, how that oh, is oh no yeah so yeah. the deck no, is terrible. open yep, yep people are calling the ready room yeah people are like where's this dude cats you know everyone's where's this guy at all right so anyway so i'm on the platform so eventually he checks in with the follow-on recovery yeah 
So yep. he skipped the Yo-Yo Pro come in and trap, stayed out, and he comes in with that other dude. Oh man! <laughs> and so they're in low holding, and the first one's down at two thousand. So anyway, so they come in. So all right, and I'm on the pickle. Um, and all I hear is this. <laughs> no sound. It was a quiet pass. Uh. And so I. It was kind of one of those. So it was so yeah. different. I'd heard about those types of passes. A quiet. When a hornet flies by you and it's really quiet, that's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nope, you got it. So, traps, idle in the wires. Oh. Okay, so, oh, keg yep. paddles is next to me. Oh, yeah. And so, I was like, oh, and I'm, I'm so new. I, I, I was like, okay, I read the pass, and he's like, hey, Susan, I'll do the debrief on this one. Yeah. Okay, so we do the paddles debrief, all that. When we get to the red room, keg paddles reads him the pass, and it was a cut pass. Yeah. Yep. So this is what happened. <laughs> and we coined this. We gave us a turn. <laughs> so if you can take off on a Yo-Yo Pro and do a wrong clearing turn for an almost midair to a BFM to miss your deck time to a cut pass and still be able to fly. Oh, that's we, unreal. We called that the Roy Hobbs. That is, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've never, awesome. I've never heard of it or seen it, Ugh. but there, there is an actual mold of the story. Is so I was the, I was the head paddles. Yeah. I was super junior head paddles. Mm-hmm. You know, so all the dudes in the squadron are, yeah. they have so much more boat experience, but they're, they're really kind of mentoring me in this whole paddles role. So I sit down with the CEO, and he's like, "What's your recommendation for so and so?" And I was like, "I think you should be flying right away." <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah. you know. Okay, maybe done for the day. Go chew him out, whatever. Have your chat because he got to go meet. Uh, oh, I'm sure he got I'm to go sure meet he Kang got on to, that yeah. one. Um, <laughs> he got to meet some of sixes, and uh, but I was like, get him flying. And to your point, yeah, you know, super long story. That was a great. Story. Back to yes, you know the guy that yep. the prowler dude. Get him back in the air, man. Yes. Like, get him going. Build that confidence back up. Yeah. So no, Susan, you say, and you know, two other examples to highlight. I think your, your intuition is exactly spot on. And another thing I've also learned that you have learned, I'm sure an exercise is you trust your gut. Uh, in this particular instance, or I'm sorry, in a different instance, we had a young man that ended up doing phenomenal things, ended up teaching at Top Gun as well. Um, he ended up becoming the paddles, but he was one of the guys we swapped out for in between the two cruises. Not that we swapped out, but he was a new guy. He was struggling behind the ship at night. And the answer that we came up with, all of us, again, we were like, nope, he needs to fly often at night until he gets over this. Because, again, if you if he has a question mark in his head that he's not going to be successful, that is the most dangerous place he can be. I've also seen one other example that I thought was tremendous um, when we were at, actually up at Top Gun. Unfortunately, we had uh, one of the students uh, pass away, and he flew into the ground. Um, I happened to be the adversary at the merge with him to see that take place. The the admiral came down and said, and so going through that entire thing, um, you know, I know you know plenty of guys have had something very similar happen, but the admiral did a great job, and he said, "Listen, guys, we are. This is what we are doing here. This is why we are doing it. Um, take whatever time you need. We're going to get back in the jets the next day. So everybody's going to take one day. You're going to think about it, which is a good thing. But then we're going to get we're going to overcome it. And if you're airborne and anything happens and you you just you no one's going to ask you a single question. You need to land the jet and do it. But he's like, we are not going to spend any more time than that because we have got to get over 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 it, get past it. So I think you're right on, brother. You did yeah. the right thing. It was a uh, 
The Roy Hobbs, man. <laughs> not recommended. Nope, not, I would not advise not the Roy Hobbs. It was, and we were trying to come up with it. This is the junior captain sitting around. Oh, like, what are awesome. we going to call this? You know, because we had heard, you know, you ride the bull. There's all these bow terms, you know, this stuff. And, oh, yeah. You know, but what do you call this? I don't know if it's ever happened. Nope. I think and I, and my, my favorite brother. baseball movie is The Natural. Oh, yeah. And sure. he's super talented, natural at everything. I'm like, this guy, this is definitely the Roy Hobbs. <laughs> so, and uh, that individual, again, no names. Went on to be a commanding officer of a Marine fighter tax. Good for him. Yes. As he should. As he should. Hey, you can exactly. learn some lessons when you're young and right. recover, it's, man. It's, it's those those who have and those who will. Yes, that's, that's you know, right. Kind of thing. All right. So oh, that's good great. sidebars, man. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, let's uh so I wanted to hit on some background stuff. You know, leadership lessons, things you yeah. picked up, you know, back in the day. Cause I think those have uh, those are kind of the foundation for yeah at least for me, the stuff I learned, good and bad, you know, as, as a young dude, now taking those lessons and applying them in various facets. Yep. All right, so COVID-19, man. Yep. First question to start this off is, so when COVID first happened, to my recollection, it was early 2020. Yes. And to kind of clear the air, if anybody is wondering my perspective on COVID and the vaccine, all that stuff, because that's what we're going to get into here. So I got the vaccine. I got off active duty in the fall of 2020. I was doing the corporate thing, um, getting needed hours, needed yep. 100 hours and 12 months for the airline you know, to be competitive. So I was doing a corporate thing. It was a great deal. The company said, hey, if you want to get it, get it. If you don't, no big deal. So it was a very, it was an optional thing. Yep. I was like, that's cool. I appreciate that. So I had recently gotten accepted into Italian language school in Italy and it had been closed for two years. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. It wasn't closed, but they had, uh, basically I, I missed the application deadline. So I, I make the application, um, get accepted. They say, Hey, you're accepted. And you essentially pick your class date cause they start a new class every month. I was like, okay, well I'll start, you know, in October. So October of 2021, they had put out guidance that, you didn't need the vaccine to go. It was recommended mm-hmm. based on the way uh, sure. kind of the European yep. reaction sure. to COVID and being in Italy, it was a, it was pretty prevalent. So, so fall 2021, I was like, okay, I didn't need it. I didn't have to get it, but my plan was to max out my experience in Italy, travel Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Sweden, yep. everywhere, go all over the place. And Okay, well, if it makes it less friction, if there's less friction, if I have this vaccine, okay, I'll do it. Wasn't mandated. Sure. Totally optional. Yeah. yeah. So I went and I got, and I was like, the closest, cheapest, quickest one was the Johnson Johnson one. Mm-hmm. So uh, I live in Charlotte, so I, I Google where you can go get a shot. And uh, there's a grocery store, Mexican grocery store in Charlotte that sells the best ingredients if you ever want to make Mexican food. And you know it's good because it's always Mexicans hanging yeah, out there. Sure. Like, this is legit. Yep, it's a real deal. You yeah. know, everything's in Spanish. It's awesome. Yeah. And the people are so nice. Well, so I was like, I had been there before. But I, when I, you know, the COVID vaccination site, it gives me the same address as this Mexican grocery store. I'm like, all right. Well, I'll just throw it in the GPS, see what happens. So I pull up the grocery store and there's a plastic table in the parking lot. And it looks kind of like a... I don't know. I, I, like, you know, the tables when you do a race and it's like the water stand, yeah. like here's your water. Yes. Yeah. There's like one of those and there's a couple people there and they had these white boxes and, you know, 
they're giving out COVID shots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was like, is this, I'm looking around, is this, is, is this real? And I'm sure there's places where it's a, like a medical facility uh-huh. where you get your COVID shot. But I was like, this is where I come to get my freaking salsa, man. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I talked to the woman. I was like, Hey, what do I, uh, what do you need? And they're like, Oh, just show us the driver's license real quick. I was like, okay. So I show them and they're like, okay, fill out this little form. So you basically fill in your, whatever's on your driver's license. And, uh, okay. Hey, left or right shoulder. Cool. Left shoulder. Go give me a shot. I'm like, and then they give me my little white note card. Sure. My yep. COVID vax card. Yep. And the woman, um, wrote the wrong date, the wrong type of vaccine. And Jen just scribbled it out <laughs> and changed it and wrote again. And, you know, it looks like a fourth grader yeah. wrote this thing. And, yeah. I, and I says, is this it? I was like, is this, do, do I need, do, what else do you need from me? They go, that's it. I was like, so this card is it? That's crazy. And I'm, I'm, I've got this, I mean, dude. <laughs> that's nuts. Oh, that's crazy. So I was like, there's more to this, right? This yeah. isn't it. And I was like, do you need me to pay anything? Like, document anything anywhere sign in online i don't know how you guys keeping track of all this stuff and they're like no no we're good government pays for everything so I, I take my little note card and i was like all right cool and <laughs> when you get to italy right um they had the thing called the green pass which yep. i'm not sure if you heard about yep. but it was essentially a qr code that you would show to people, they would either look at it or scan it with their phone or something. You could download a Green Pass scanner app that said, hey, this is legit. Like, hey, Sonny's got his Vax card because I saw his QR code. Yep. All right. So a friend of mine from school sends me the link. And essentially it was you, the short version is you go on this website and you can pick your country. So there are Green Passes in Switzerland, Austria, Germany, all different. But Switzerland, everybody loves Switzerland. They trust Switzerland. So I was like, they're like, hey, get the Swiss one. Nobody yeah. asks questions about Switzerland. Yeah. You know, if you, if you get like one of the, I, pick your other country, like, ah, I don't know if that's legit. That could be, could be bullshit. Sure, sure. But Switzerland, everybody loves it. So oh, yeah. I go on the Swiss website and you fill in, it's your basic information, just your driver's license type stuff. And then date vaccinated, cool. Uh, and then you upload a PDF of your Vax card. So I had a little picture of it. And then you submit it to a board for review. And you pay your $35 fee. So I did this, it was, gosh, 11 o'clock p.m. Italian time. So the Swiss board was either working overtime, you know, it was the night crew, but sure, I got an email back magically. Approved, yeah, I bet. Less than 45 minutes later that the board approved my COVID vaccination, yep, yep. and they send you a QR code via email. You just download it, you take a picture of it, and that's what you use to, you know, show around town. And I'm like, this, there's no way. This is just, this does not jive. Yeah. My little gut reaction. Yeah. But that's what I used. You walk around, show around, you, you know, you go into different places. Yep. And, and one of the things I loved about Italy was that the Italians, they are, if something doesn't look right or smell right or it, something's not right, they will say it. They'll be like, hey, man, hey, hey, you don't order a cappuccino after dinner, bro. And they will actually say no to you. No I, kidding. I, they, if you order that a cappuccino, really cool. yeah. you have, I, I've done this personally. You order a cappuccino at six o'clock, you know, before or after dinner, they will literally say no. Now that's, yeah, that is and, rare. And, and the customer service world, it's not, it's not normal for the bartender to tell you, no, I'm yeah. not serving you that because we only drink that before 2 PM. Yeah. So anyway, um, oh, that's, that's amazing. But the Italians were great. And, and the thing was they, when the rules came out about the whole green pass and stuff, 
the Italians were all about, look, just, we want to keep our businesses open. Yep. So we're going to play along. Yep. So just, Hey, look, if you got something that looks like a COVID vax card or a green pass, come on in. So they could stay open and actually the economy could continue to function. Yeah. Um, and I had a buddy from Libya in my Italian class who wasn't vaccinated. So we would always sit outside, but sometimes when it was cold, you know, and actually snowed during the winter there, I was like, here, dude. So I sent him a screenshot of my, my yeah. QR code yeah. so he could get into all the bars. Yeah. And that's what we did. Yeah. Um, sure. So anyway, I've, I've got the, the J and J vaccine. I did it for those reasons. Yeah. Um, it was not mandated. Yep. And uh, so th- that was my, the thought process behind it. But getting back to the question we started with. So when COVID happens early 2020, where were you and how did you guys, you and Jen and the kids and kind of the family, how did you guys initially react when you first heard about it? Oh, that's a great question. So um, we were here in Yuma and actually we kind of couldn't believe what was taking place. We had some friends that got pretty sick uh, that winter, as a matter of fact, probably in January timeframe. And then we we're probably convinced that they actually had COVID and they were sicker than normal. Uh, they were healthy individuals like us, generally speaking, about the same career timeline. They were peers, friends, so uh, early 40s, uh, healthy individuals. And they just had, they're like, man, that was like a really bad flu. Had a really bad case of flu, whatever the case may be. Didn't have uh, the ability to diagnose as anything else. So when COVID first came out, it was kind of in that, in that context. One of the challenges uh, when it came out for us and the family is, so Jen is a nurse. Her whole family are all medical professionals. And so they have a lot of information that you or I may never come across. One of the huge challenges, though, was so COVID pops. No one really knows what it is, kind of to your point. And we may not even have this, be having this discussion if we didn't have enough time to figure out what it exactly what it was comprised of, what the narrative that supported it. Uh, there are a lot of people, like you said, yourself. Where, I mean, we certainly don't look any differently on anybody who's made the decision to get vaccinated. But like, to your point, they made a decision that was their best decision to make. It was their decision to make. Um, and so a lot of people were like, yep, I don't know what this is. Uh, I'm being told to take it by my medical professionals, and I'm happy to do so. There's a level of trust with a medical profession that I would argue probably is the same question today. So when that happened, we're here in March timeframe, they start saying, hey, we're going to have to lock everything down. That's when the whole quarantine began, came for discussion. And one of the interesting parts about that is the methodology associated with quarantining or masks or any of those other things. Um, you do not do with a healthy population. And we had a conversation offline a little bit earlier. Some of these things have transpired in the past before. And so that was the first indicator right out the gate was why are we taking these steps that are against current medical protocol for this one particular virus that we know little to nothing about. Now, you can certainly make a good argument of, oh, it's more contagious, it's this, that, and the other, but the the rationale and the argumentation supporting it was not backed scientifically in any way, shape, or form. And then not only that, but the narrative we were being told about it was completely contradictory from our personal experiences and the experiences of our friends and family. And so when that began, that when that breakdown began to occur, that's when we began to really start to question what are the motivations behind this? Okay. So initial reaction, so your spuddy sense was saying. Mm. Yeah. So very much saying like, man, this is not, and I'll, uh, again, I'm not a medical professional. So I certainly had to say I, I have my place and this is not it. However, everything else is not matching up. So even if I don't, even if I disregard what I'm being told medically, the other pieces, like scientifically, you'd never come to the same conclusion. And as a result, I don't need to be a medical professional to make that determination. 
but I also had family members who were medical professionals and they were saying, these are the problems we're beginning to see with what we're being told with the documentation that exists and the way that they're approaching trying to solve it. So did you, from your opinion, did you assess that the reaction to it was a uh, calculated reaction or, or something potentially that was a little more of a, what I would call something kind of a knee jerk? Yeah. I think I would like to give it, um, I would like to say that it was knee jerk. I think at the time that was definitely the case. We thought, you know what, this is a very dramatic response to something that is probably not required as something as dramatic, but then uh, in addition to that, when you started to look at like, man, well, that's a decision that was contrary to good science. Like, so when, when do we quarantine healthy people? When do we ever tell somebody that um, you need to go get vaccinated so you don't pass this on to somebody else? Say asymptomatic passage, like all those things that are scientific phenomenon that don't exist. And so when that happened, that's when it was like, okay, um, I certainly, and, and I think we're going to probably get into this a little bit. There are certainly folks who are making decisions based on the information that they have. And nobody can fault anybody for that, nor should they. But there are highly likely individuals who probably knew better. And as a result, when you started to see those pieces or put those pieces together, then it became to question or draw the question, what is the motivation behind doing this? And did, what is the motion, motivation behind the approach? Did you guys get COVID here? Like the, the family? We did. Mm-hmm. How, how was the experience for... It's a couple I days. mean, did you get it? Yep. Yep. I've had it probably twice, I think, now. Okay. So I had COVID the first time. I was, I was sick a couple of days. And uh, actually, I think the first time it may have been about three or three days where I was sick. And then that was that was the extent of it. Uh, for our kids, it was the same thing. So very, and that was the first round. And then the second round, where we probably got it about a year to a year and a half later, it was one day you're sick and, and then you were fine. And so since we, then? And since then, yep. So that's two over the last probably, uh, gosh, almost two and a half, three years now. So the most recent, so the most recent bout that we've had um, of sickness would be a day that we were sick. Now, I'll also have to confess that at that point, too, COVID only was uh, garnering the same level of interest inside the Department of Defense. So uh, whether we had COVID or not is unknown. We did not trip the wire anymore. And especially now, since they're saying, well, you know what, we have done away with the um, we've done away with so many of these protocols that used to exist that we're not even interested in testing it. And we didn't hit the tripwire. So, you know, our family gets sick on occasion, but it is pretty darn rare. And uh, we'll have our family members usually sick for about a day and then, and then they move on. That's it. Got it. So y'all had COVID. Was this before the mandate? So we had COVID. Oh yes, absolutely. Before the mandate. So before sure. the mandate. So, yes. so COVID twice before the mandate. You bet. So okay, so you guys had, have your experience. So not only do we have our experience, but then it goes back to the question of motivation. Um, for the first time, COVID, for some reason, people were disregarding any kind of natural immunity, which was another huge question. And there was already existing protocol to treat that. In fact, you would not do so in the same way you would treat any other virus that had existed at that point. So when we were beginning to def- depart from what was known science to some degree, and come to dramatic conclusions centered around just this vaccine itself and just this virus to include a narrative that was not congruent. That's when we began to have some questions with it. Got it. Gosh, I'm trying to think. So the, when the timeline for obviously vaccines were in discussion, yep. the mandate had not happened yet. Correct. Because that was August of 21. Yes, sir. When the mandate wouldn't You got it, Susan, yeah. So did you have experience with friends or family that had gotten the vaccine or discussions with them because I, I like to hear because in my experience 
experience has changed in the past year to year and a half. Yes. So there was the, hey, here's information that we've got now. This is, I'm going to make a decision based on this information then. So that's 18 months ago. And then now it's like, well, wait a second here. Yeah. I don't know if what I know now. Yes. How I would, if I would make the same decision. Correct. Did you have any discussions with people who had, who were interested in, the vaccine we thought that was the best decision for them yes you know before it became mandated yeah absolutely in fact uh, what we did is before so it, and we were talking uh, about this a little bit earlier um the lawyer that we've actually began to work very closely with one of them um he had had some experience with this before in the past with anthrax and so we reached out to him uh probably six to eight actually it was eight months before the mandate because um i had heard of some of the work that he had done i'd read uh, a good bit of literature uh, about it uh, and about some of the past and began to build a picture of the fact that this may not have been the first time something like this has presented itself. And so when we go ahead, Susan, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Cause I've done a little bit of homework on it, but I, that was, it was new to me. And when it was new to me too, it and was, this is something too. that, you know, the world 20 plus years ago. Yeah. It was a information didn't spread as quickly. Yes. No. So can you talk a little bit about the anthrax part? Yeah, you bet. In fact, so what happens from, from a timeline perspective, COVID hits, everybody begins to get awareness to what this is, but doesn't know what it is exactly. So that's the early 2020 timeframe. So about a year later, early 2021, so about January timeframe is when I first reached out. So we had done a bunch of research on vaccines, a whole bunch of other things to try to figure out what is this and what's the best approach, especially like you said, before it was mandatory. Um, during that process is where we begin to find out that uh, this is not the first time something like this has happened. And I'll get back to anthrax in a second. But even then, the lineage of the Department of Defense, unfortunately, we've done this a handful of times before, where experimental use items have presented themselves. And it was leadership was not transparent with what it was or what they were doing. And they've later come up and said, yes, what we did was wrong. In some cases, what we did was illegal. And, and we're, well, ne- never that we're sorry for it, but we did that. And so... What uh, Dale Saran, I know he wouldn't mind me mentioning his name, he wrote a book, I think it was Member of the Armed Forces versus United States of America or something very similar to that title, um, but that really captured his experience. And he actually wrote the book over uh, almost 20, almost 19 years. And when he saw COVID hit, he said, you know what, I'm going to publish this book because I'm seeing some of the same manifestations happen again. Now, oh, good. Oh, go ahead. Well, go so with anthrax, yeah, one anthrax thing that's very incredibly important. Yeah. The anthra- so he is actually defending people who had made the decision not to get the anthrax vaccine. Now, what came from anthrax, and this is fascinating, so some of my numbers may be off just a hair because it's been a while since I've read the book um, and other literature surrounding it, except for the fact that the res- end result of anthrax is the Department of Defense, approximately five years later, saying, yes, we forced an emergency use authorized drug on our members. And so because people at the time now were saying, like, I'm having these adverse issues, I'm having these problems. And one of the challenges that they had at the time that we also had here is the fact that nobody's accountable for it. You've got one entity saying, we told them it was an emergency. They accepted it anyway. You have another entity saying, oh, but we came to a determination that's interchangeable, although legally distinct. All that terminology really begins to matter because then accountability is not held. And that's one of the challenges we'll even face today. Anthrax, though, so he defended these individuals in court. Often, several of them got court-martialed. Later, the Department of Defense said, yes, we made a mistake, and what we do is illegal. And what came from that was what you often hear is the Section 1107. So statutory law came as a result of anthrax saying that no one is authorized to force on a service member 
an emergency use authorized drug. And that's a huge part of one of the many tenants surrounding COVID's uh, shot. So to see if I can clarify that and just break it down. So the anthrax, so this is timeline. This is around Gulf War One. That's right, so, early 2000s. Yep. So was it, wait, early 2000s? Early 2000s, though. Yep. Early 2000s. Oh, yes. so that was when the... But they were given the vaccine prior, right? Or uh, no, so they, it's fascinating. Um, 2004, 2005, 2006 is okay. when it began to mature. And then shortly thereafter is when the DOD said, it was about five years after that, they said, nope, we, uh, we forced something that was an emergency use authorized. And historically, that is the first time the United States government has ever executed emergency use authorization. So that's that's one of the challenges is that's not the case. So there are more than one occasion where service members have been subject to um, items introduced themselves under different contexts. And what I mean by different contexts is there was not full transparency. In fact, if you look at uh, certain populations within the Department of Defense, uh, they even segregated individuals based on color. Ah, sub- so this is the Tuskegee. Yeah, absolutely. So and the so what Dale does in this book is he outlines a history over the last probably roughly 70 years yep. of the items that has happened up to anthrax in the book. And then now he's become involved because he's got so much history uh, and so much working knowledge. He's become involved with the COVID shot. Remind me to mention that because I thought about that earlier today. And again, my, my level of knowledge of the Tuskegee Test mm-hmm. they did back in the day yep. on African Americans yep. and all that, and it went on for a long time. It, it wasn't just quick; it, That's right. it went on for years. That's right. Um, and I guess the heartbreaking part too in that case is what they were told. Yeah. And so that's the piece is like, hey, you are, we are doing this, we are doing this, and there was that nowhere did they intimate we are experimenting on your bodies for reaction. What's the name of that book? Before I forget to ask, you know what? I'll actually grab it because um, it is something very similar to uh, members of the armed forces versus United States of America, or something very close to that. Okay, Dale Saran is the gentleman's name, and it is a worthwhile book to read. All right, and he is an attorney. That is correct. All right, yeah, um, and has he's got twenty plus years of experience with this kind he of stuff. He does, and so he had it uh, before, and he actually worked. So he was a Cobra pilot uh, as a Marine. He worked as a JAG. He retired as a JAG, and then he continued on uh, as a lawyer in civilian life. Okay, got it. And he's involved in this now. Yeah, the anthrax stuff, I encourage anyone, Google some stuff, do some reading. This is not the first time this has happened. Well, in anthrax, and this is going to get to something that we'll get to here in just a minute um, with respect to motivation within even just the context of our family. Anthrax at the time, they tried to push it on the entire U.S. population, and Congress shut that down very quickly because they, it was the same discussion. Generally speaking, remember from a service member's perspective is like, you may get exposed to this and because you may get exposed to this and the reactions are so bad, we're going to give you this vaccine to avoid that. And the argument was because of an aerial application of anthrax over the United States, that every member of the United States should get anthrax. That was the discussion. Jeez, dude. That was the discussion. That sounds like a and Congress freaking horror movie. Congress shot it down. Well, that's good. Uh, that was a great example Jeez. of Congress interacting. I mean, that sounds like a like a horror movie in action. Yes, you know, you've seen the sum of all fears. Yep, yep. you know that's a horror yeah. movie yep. in my book. <laughs> yeah, that's a horror movie. Yep, yep. Jeez. All right. Well, thanks for the history lesson because the anthrax thing, without getting into too much, we could dive down that rabbit hole. That's absolutely There's a worth, lot there. worth researching. Yes, and it's yes, fascinating. Um, all right. So mandate is. 
it's not it hasn't happened yet no and 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 let me just finish that calendar piece for you susan and then that may springboard you into the next question so mandate so no this is january ish of 2020 i give him a phone call and i said listen i've read your book i'm concerned that we're going to see this very same thing or something very similar play out and uh, i believe we have enough indications and warnings now that a mandate is going to come for all of society and the department of defense and at the at the time, one of those huge challenges were Dale was keeping pace with it a little bit. But when you go back to having discussions with family and having discussions with society, uh, that's the first time in my life that I've ever been called point blank a conspiracy theorist. Like, if it is mandatory, like you are, that is complete conspiracy theory, one. Second is, <laughs> it, they would never mandate that for all of society, conspiracy two. I used to do congrats. Well, not only that, here comes the third one, too, was the, oh, there's no way they would make that mandatory for their kids. <laughs> And so I'm like, oh, I'm man, I've never, I've never had this happen yes, before. Sorry. You're crazy, uh, dude. you know. I, uh, yep, and it's well, it's not the first time I've been called crazy, but right. definitely the first time conspiracy theory label uh, was was lamp blasted on me on, on more than one occasion. And so it was those sort of things where we said, you know what, like, and you know, we'll get to this. I, I'm sure at some point, but looking across the whole purview at that time, so early 2021 uh, now, so a year with COVID proper. We thought those were the directions uh, that society was going. And so a huge part of our drawing the line in the sand with the COVID shot was the fact that we saw a society going in a direction. And so when you're talking about like this, you know, people have asked too, like, hey, suddenly like, what did your wife think about this? I'm like, no, no, no. This was an approach for the two of us with prayer and fasting because in our mind, they were after our children. And people were like, you're crazy if you think that's the case. But as it stands right now, our kids are not required to have it. But you looked all over, all around us, even before it was adjudicated at the state level, people were being forced to continue on with what they considered a life. Um, they didn't want life conveniences interrupted, and it came at the cost of their family. And we were not willing to let that barrier get crossed uh, over to our children. So that was the that gets to my, my next little bullet point here on this outline that I typed up, is the tipping point. When you realize when whatever, you know, red flag went off in your your heart, your soul, your mind, where you're like, I'm not doing this, man. Um, so, so mandate happens, right? Yep. But you've already had a pretty good radar. I mean, you can see this is evolving into this type of event. You know, it's kind of coming down the pipe based on historical, that type of thing. Yeah. So was your decision pre-mandate yes. already made? You bet. And it- what was the... What was that discussion like with Jen? Well, was there th- even a discussion? No, there was. I, th- I think it was a constant conversation because she and and this is another thing that I'm, I praise God for every day is that our hearts were at one accord. So we went back before to a discussion where it took three years of prayer to lay a foundation, and our hearts were one accord, and we made the decision. And in a month, we were it was done. In this case, from the get go, we were on one accord. So that was huge. So it was not it was not a one time. It was it was and this began to at that time especially because we were like, man, the narrative is not matching up in so many ways. And we had just complete red flags from a constitutional, legal, moral, medical standpoint. And as a result, it was a constant conversation in the home. We've got four teenagers. So it was a very vibrant uh, every night and it began to really consume us. So much so though, that before the mandate came, we heard or thought Congress was going that direction and leadership in the Department of Defense. And we'd heard it actually from congressional action we were having. Uh, At that time, we reached out as a precursor. I personally called our family members, told them all exactly what we were going to do. And and it was a a good 
conversation because we wanted to hear their opinion. We were also saying, listen, we are praying and fasting about this decision, but we are not perfect people. And if you disagree, I would love to hear your opinion. I also reached out to all of my mentors in the service and said, listen, my can, I, and the main reason I reached out to them was not to try to convince them at all. It was to say, listen, you have advocated for our career this entire time. I'm a slated commander, and I am so grateful because people like you have done that and, and been over backwards to help me. And I want to ensure that you know that when we fall on this side of the fence on this decision, and it comes at the cost of our career, because don't forget the time they were talking Article 92 conviction, jail time. We have no, I mean, there were some significant, I'll call coercion in, the, in, a, in a lawful context, uh, things that were being levied against us that we thought were worth it. So it was important for me to reach out to our leaders and say, what I value more than anything, even if you are in a position to prosecute me and have to, based on how you interpret duty, that our friendship beca- uh, gets retained. And so that all that happened before the mandate hit. So when the mandate came, it was, a, and I'd already had the discussion with the skipper, already, I, my entire chain of command knew. And um, then yeah, we were certainly put our money where our mouth was. Okay, so you uh, you threw your cards down early. I did. Okay, man. So, jeez, dude. The skipper discussion. Yep. Rolling into your skipper's office. Yep. And telling him face-to-face, should this order come down, I'm not doing it. That's right. No, I, I'm... Again, no, yeah. no, hang on. I got to, there's a way, there's a way I would say it. And I know there's a way you said it, which is way better. <laughs> I don't way know. Better. Like, I mean, if you just imagine a bull rolling into a China shop, with two M60s breaking every window, that's, that's my delivery. <laughs> that's a good delivery. You no, know, it's so smooth. Uh, um, but the, you gotta, there, there's some mental prep and chair flying in rehearsal and you, yes. you don't just come in there and just start chucking shit against the wall. Right. You bet. So you had thought that through. Yes. How did the conversation with the skipper go? Well, so there's, it's interesting because in our chain of command, there's three individuals from, from me. So at the time, I was attack air department head, and um, I had, because VMX-1 is a unique place, it's an operational test, it has an operations or project directorate, and then it has a standard squadron. So you have a chief operational test director, and because I was doing operational tests in the F-35, I technically report to that person before I report to the executive officer. And the executive officer just does the administrative stuff. So it's, it's, it's broken down a little bit differently. So that conversation was threefold. One, it was with the chief operational test director. And that individual said, uh, listen, I don't agree with you. I have not come to the same conclusion that you've come to. However, I support you as a person. And if there's anything I can do for you, you let me know. And he is a personal peer and friend. I had the executive officer say, you are the reason why people are dying. You are completely misinformed. Um, and at the time, it was, it's, it was a bit rough for a while because keep in mind, like none of us know, I didn't have a clue that there was even a Marine Corps order that existed to how you do a religious uh, accommodation request. Like no one even knew what those things were. So a huge part of the education had to begin then. Like legal pro- I had never been... Uh, charged criminally. Uh, I like those things were all brand new. Check a lot of a boxes. Lot, man. <laughs> it was a lot of very short time yeah. frame. The CEO at the time uh, shared. He said, "Listen, I, I actually think what you're doing is is right, um, but I am not going to. I am not going to stand in the way of policy, and um, so I'm not going to be. Uh, I'm not going to be against you per se, uh, but I'm going to execute the orders that I am given." 
regardless of how I feel about this. And, uh, and I still have wonderful relationships with all three of those men. Um, so that, that is how the conversation ended. I also know that a lot of people at that time too, did not believe it would get as serious as we believed it would. And it ended up getting that way. So for example, people were like, listen, man, there's no way I'll enforce that. There's no way I'll do that. They can't make me do that. They don't record it. They don't just people saying that they felt as if in leadership, they had ways to work around it so that they could shelter people that were going to disagree. And our opinion was that this was so volatile politically, that there's no possible way that uh, it would be hidden in that fashion. And sure enough, that's what ended up happening. How is the relationship now? It's very good. So with, with your CEO. Well, and so to your point, you know, I mean, I think Susan, at the end of the day, um, I have valued very much the friendships that I have. And you we found out very quickly too who the real genuine articles are and who are not. Um and we do we make no distinction between who's vaccinated and who's not, and really about even the decision they made based on whatever rationale they use. Like totally understand it. Yeah. All good, you know, like, hey, I don't I don't want to lose my retirement, I don't want to lose my job, I'm getting it. Where it broke our heart was the fact that we did not know anybody that was making that decision medically. Everybody was using, unfortunately, susceptible to use their bodies in a business transaction. And that's that was fundamentally the problem. I remember talking to a representative and he, he was like, I advocated my son to get this because I told him like, there's no way you'll do business. And he just looked at me right when he tracked right there and said, that's the problem, isn't it? And I was like, you better believe it is. That is fundamentally the problem we have here. So the reason why I mention all that is because we've been able to maintain a very good relationship with people who disagree. I have uh, all the patience in the world for somebody who's like, listen, Sonny, I disagree with you completely. I think this is the best medical decision you could ever make with your in your life. I have all the information. That's it. I'm like, you know what, man? You are operating on a conviction just like I am, and I get it. Even though we're totally different, I respect that. What really, really stings are people that are saying, like, I'm, I, I, my hands are tied. I can't do anything for you. But I agree with you. Or, you know, like, oh, there's just nothing I can do. Uh, policies there. I'm just not, or I'm just not willing to do anything. And those were the kinds of things where it's like, man, I thought... A lot of times leaders had a bit more moral fiber uh, than unfortunately what our experience uh, ended up being. So that, that was, the, that was uh, tough when I, you know, we'd, we'd covered this a little bit, but when I had, when the names of people started popping up in conversations of those that were like, no. And I started, there's definitely a trend. And I'd mentioned, you know, as I'm going through the list, I'm not going to mention the, you know, the people that are fighting this fight. But I was like, I drink beer with, those are all my people. And like-minded individuals. And I also have also some of my closest friends, they got the vaccine. Cool, dude, rock yeah, and roll. Don't absolutely. If that is what is best, and they also did some research before. Yeah, sure. Which is key. There's yep. there's yep. the the individual who, you know, some type of stimulus happens and then they just react. Yeah, then there's a person who the stimulus happens, they do a little bit of homework, maybe some independent thinking, analyze things, let's evaluate. Hey, I've got a wife and four kids and those kind of things. Yeah. What's the best decision? You bet. And then you make the decision. Absolutely. And dude, rock and roll. Like my big, I have a dog and a coffee roasting machine. That's that's it. And the dog <laughs> is still alive, so I'm winning. That's um, awesome. So I don't have, I mean, you, you've <laughs> got, good. you know, you've got a wife, four kids. Yep. 19 years active duty. That's right. Okay, so retirement's, Right there. There's there's a shit ton of stuff on the table. Yep. 
and you know leadership comes in all shapes and sizes but there is a there is a significant amount of weight that comes with someone who is willing to take all of that and say no this over here is worth more than that yep and so i think that is a it's not a light decision man i mean you know this no, I think I've, I mean, did you guys was was it I, it, I don't want to say an easy decision, but was it a simple decision? That's a, that's a great distinction. That is absolutely correct. It was a simple decision because in the context of our relationship with the Lord, we are responsible for being obedient, and that's a day at a time. And we fail at it just like everybody else does. But to that point, uh, you are responsible for one piece and often we conflate it with stuff. It is a simple decision. It's not easy. It's not comfortable, but it's a simple decision. So, for, for and you hit on this, you know, Susan, earlier. When we were looking at this decision, this had very little to do with what is that vaccine going to do to my body? What is it going to do to our future? <clears throat> like all those things, it had that was that was a tangent part, maybe appendix sub bullet. Like that was way down the list. What was fundamentally in question were the freedoms and the oath of office we took. Those are the massive overarching principles. And the last thing I was going to do was let them get to my wife and children without coming through me. And then the other piece was to look at larger society and say, if we fold here, the line has to be drawn somewhere. We're seeing an ideology progress that we do not agree with. And the line has got to be drawn somewhere. And this tripped all of our wires. And that's how we drew the line. Man, there's so many historical examples that you can reference to. If you don't hold a line somewhere and you keep slowly yep. backpedaling and then you look around, you're like, there's no line anymore. Yes. And just read history from any time. I don't know. There's a shit ton of examples. Um, well, and Susan, to your point, as we were mulling through this, this very quickly became two to three hours of phone calls in the morning before work, three to five hours of phone calls in the evening, every night, all of the American, especially when people knew what we were doing. Um, and people reached out out of genuine uh, concern because they did not want to see all that we were willing to say no to. Um, but it was, it was in that context, the historical example you're talking about where we just knew, I knew myself well enough to know that I could mint, I could do enough mental gymnastics to get, to get myself around this, and there, but it was tearing at us to a point where the, there was no peace, and that was a beautiful part of the way the Holy Spirit works in a believer. There is complete peace with the decision we made. So when we were walking into the first day, we're like, "This is the order. This is the day. You're going into the squadron, and you're going to walk out with one of twenty people." As it turned out, that will not have a shot that day. That was done in perfect peace. And that is not because of who I am. That is completely because of the God we serve. Very cool. I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, we uh, we covered, you know, shut up in color. Yeah. You know, yeah. something we use in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, and to what that translates to is doing things you don't want to do, but you're ordered to do them. Yep. So, and, and coloring is our, our little metaphor. So shut up in color, which means... Hey, Sonny, go do your online training. You know, go, yeah. go, you know, that's shut up in color. Or, hey, Sonny, go, uh, hey, you got to write an LOI for the PT next week. 
and yep. uh, I need it in 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I, sir. Yep. Yep. You, that's when you just shut up in color. Yeah. And that's, a, that's are admin boring, non-fun examples, but the, there's shut up in color examples where Marines want to metaphorically color. You go to an infantry battalion, any ground battalion, tank battalion, and, you know, MARSOC, anybody, and you say to those guys, hey, do you want to go storm a building full of insurgents? They will jump oh, yeah. at the opportunity. Absolutely. They will who wants to volunteer to go fight the good fight? They will every they will be racing and fighting each other to be the first in line. Yeah. You know? Hey, I need a four pack of Marines to go stack a door and clear a house. And what that entails is, hey, you might die. Yep. You might get grenaded. You might get an AK round to the face, maybe an RPG. Maybe there's 20 dudes in there. Maybe there's a you know some booby traps, maybe some mines. You might die. And a ton of bad shit might happen. And they'll raise their hand to go do it. So you take that type of personality yep. that wants that type of challenge and engagement, and that's what they crave, and that's who we are. And you say to that same personality, you must go do this. You must take this. You don't have a choice. It's a they react very differently. Yep. Psychologically. I agree. And I, I, I analyzed myself on this when I didn't have to take the vaccine to go to Italy. But I was totally okay with it. I'm like, yeah. I'm a healthy yeah. dude. Yep. It was probably a water shot in the Mexican parking lot, whatever. But I, I my initial reaction to you have the option, vice. You don't have the option. You must do this. Right. Is totally different. And when it comes to shutting up and coloring, like we had talked about earlier, you have the experience. Um, you've got seniority. Rank is in your favor. You know, you're a halfway decent dude. You know, you got a decent vocabulary. You know, <laughs> well, well spoken. Um, but you can, you carry yourself in a way. You've got a good reputation. You have a lot of things in your favor, in your corner that um you can that can i, I guess be advantageous yep. to you that a young yeah yeah being a, being yeah. a lieutenant colonel a lot of experience all those type of things and unfortunately this same mandate is it applies to you as it does to a junior lance corporal private pfc or any junior member of any service yep independently the, the same weight is carried on you as it is carried on them yes whereas just via who you are and what you've accomplished, you have a lot of options or at least, and, and you know how to play those options, talking to your CEO, those type of things. What have you seen when it comes to how this has played a role in the junior enlisted lives? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So Susan, I mean, think, uh, well, one thing I'll, I'll say something that may, um, I was, I was amazed by. Um, is because I learned a tremendous amount from some of our young Marines who had greater clarity at times than I did, which was awesome. So in this context specifically, you became, you found out very quickly, although the services were, were trying their best to not allow people of like mind to connect, but there was something this volatile that we found ourselves pretty quickly. So a huge part of this uh, you talked about like, okay, shut up and color comes with a foundation. That foundation is trust, law, morals, ethics. Like when you violate those now, shut up and color doesn't exist. The foundation's gone. So unfortunately, we kind of eroded that piece. 
um, when you get down to the shut up and color here, back to these young Marines, um, there is no doubt in my mind they experienced something totally different than I did because they did not have those same things available. So what we absolutely believed we needed to do as leaders was advocate for them. And they actually drove much of what we were after. But there is no question in my mind that those Marines went through much greater difficulty than myself or anybody of my rank ever went through because they were told time and time again exactly what you mentioned. You, your job is to shut your mouth and do exactly what you were told to do. Now, like you mentioned, or like we talked about, that comes with trust and that comes with faith in your leadership. And unfortunately, those pieces have begun to erode in this context. Um, but those Marines, I mean, uh, for those that are listening that don't have an idea of what that relationship looks like from a young Marine up his entire chain of command and that continuum, um, it is much rougher, much more blatant um, of you just do it and I don't want to hear what you have to say about it, uh, that those Marines experience that there's no way uh, anybody in my chain of command that was senior to me was going to approach me in that, or sorry, junior to me was going to approach me in that fashion. So uh, we also knew to your point, Susan, that because we were in the position we were, we were some of the highest ranking folks that were saying no to this. That was absolutely our responsibility to make sure we were advocating for, for their interests as well. How is the, the feedback been from the junior enlisted for, well, specifically the, a huge chunk of the young Marines that were, um, junior enlisted did not go through the religious accommodation process, even though they had the criteria to, to do so. They just felt like it was, it was too much for them. They fundamentally thought this was wrong. Um, and so many of them, unfortunately, are no longer in the service. From a feedback perspective, though, they felt like they were absolutely um, supported by those of us who were trying. Because, again, I've had many conversations with the commanding officers, specifically when we felt like they were in violation of standing uh, Marine Corps administrative orders and things of that nature as it pertained to retaliation against Marines based on vaccinated status. Those are incredibly uncomfortable conversations uh, when you're sitting there I'm being outranked by the individual I'm talking to representing the folks we're talking about. Uh, it's still worthwhile. And that's what leadership is all about. It's like, man, my career, it means nothing in this context. We have got to fight for these Marines. Now, um, what's awesome is, like I said, those Marines had oftentimes greater clarity. Those Marines that we worked with specifically are crushing it in civilian world right now. So one of the things we're talking about and we'll get probably into is amendments to help rebuild what that looks like and hopefully impact the Department of Defense in the future. Um, but these Marines are doing fantastic work in other places now. And so they felt like they were supported by their immediate, almost like the tactical level, if you will, their immediate leadership or the people they could gravitate to. And a huge part of this ministry was find out who is out there, make sure they are connected in some way, shape, or form so that they have some kind of support network to move forward. Uh, so that, I think, was a huge success story. At the end of the day, too, Susan, the story that affords this is not one of pity or sorrow. This is a joyful, good news story because all the good that came out of this in the context of relationship with the Lord and relationships in general to include the preservation of freedom far outweighs any of the punitive actions that were taken against any of us. Dude, that is a... Man. That's a hell of a perspective on that. Because my initial reaction when I first, you know when I was reading about the one, the number of service members that have administratively been before us, and there's over 7,000 uh, and 
all with different types of discharges. Yes. But 7,000 service members. It's not a small number, you know, when you look at things. And I guess the leadership, there's hope in this for me when I look at it is that your junior enlisted Marine that's on the fence, who's got, I don't know, a wife and a kid. And he's told, hey, you must do this. When a senior officer, some type of senior leader is leveraging that Marine's ability to provide for his wife and family. There's, I can't think, there's very few things I can think of that are more worth fighting for than that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad to hear that the Marines that decided, hey, um, you know, nothing against anyone that decided, hey, I'm going to take the vaccine and I'm, yep. I'm going to keep doing my thing. And You bet. You know, wife and kids are happy, rock and roll. No issues. No big Absolutely. Deal. Do good yep. for you. But for those that decided like, hey, this isn't for us and they're doing well, that's that's good to hear, man. It's good to hear that they're doing well, but I do not want to minimize what they went through. Sure. Because back to your point, when the and we've shared this before on, uh, on other venues, when they snapped the chalk line on the mandate in the Marine Corps, 40% of the Marines were still not vaccinated. So if you just took the discussion on its own merit at that time frame, that's about what you would see. And even those that had gotten the vaccine believed that they did not want to interrupt their lifestyle. And again, that's a valid reason to get it. Um, so about 40% were still saying, no, thank you. Every, at every level when they said, well, now, so keep in mind at the time, there was already the uh, Marine Corps separation process that existed for any other, any other anything except for COVID. So if this was anything else and you said, you know what, I'm going to submit a religious accommodation against whatever it was, or I'm not going to take that shot. There was already an existing process. You were determined to be medically unfit. No problem. Did you have a reasonable disagreement? Yes, I did. Honorable discharge and you moved on with life. So we completely reinvented in a far more punitive fashion how we were going to handle just this one thing. So when it came back again to when you're taking this whole picture holistically and you start to think, well, I'm being told that I'm a health threat to my family and to my community and to my Marines. And that's the reason why I have to do these things with all this supporting narrative that does not match reality. It becomes a significant challenge. Now, when you talk about coercion, people are like, okay, I don't think this is a good idea. Well, you don't have to think that. But now, instead of that process we just talked about, your process is going to be you have this much time. And in this time frame, if you do not meet these wickets, of which no one really even knows what to do, and the order was rewritten July, a month prior to the mandate, then you're going to have these things take place. And it could look like this article. It could look like jail. It could look like, and every time, so then guess what happened? 40% went down to 25%. I mean, I could not... I wish I had a dollar for every person who's like, this is so wrong. I would never do this. There's no way they can make me do this. And then boom, hey, we're going to give you an other than honorable discharge. Oh, got it. Sign me up yeah, right there. Give me and my like, shot. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, and I, yeah. I get it. And again, I'm not looking, I'm not judging those individuals. The point is, is that the narrative was not existing on its own merits. It was not until rapid levels of successive coercion were placed on individuals for a significant infringement. So keep in mind, jail time, 
other than honorable discharges, dishonorable discharges, all on the table that people were pushing for. If you, if and we were having to prepare our family for the ramifications of those things in civilian life after coming out of jail. Yeah. You know, so this is not just a like, oh, you leave and it's bad. Oh, I've got some bad. Like this is, these are lifestyle, life altering choices. And so the reason why I mention all that is that is what the service members experienced by way of scrutiny. That's not the day to day, but that's like the overarching, the day to day was more like, I can't believe you won't do this. You're an idiot. I must told my face. You're such a waste. I can't believe like you're a complete waste of all the people that poured into you, like all that kind of stuff. That's every day. For the last year and a half, to some degree. And it happened at a much more severe level for those young Marines that experienced it before they were kicked out. Out of all the craziness associated with this entire evolution, that to me is the hardest part to just even digest, is the, like you had mentioned, to find out who you're, who the true people are. Yeah. When shit hits the fan. Yeah. When someone has elected to leverage the well-being and ability to provide for their family against them. Yep. And that person's in a position of leadership or power. One, that's a little bit scary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, I think it's it just reinforces the importance and just the necessity for guys like yourself who have that ability uh, you know, that voice, that that capability to represent them, it makes it even that more important when... I agree. You know, it's... it's yep. You're fighting the fight for the guys that can't fight the fight. You know, it's... it's a, In my opinion, that's... Like, if I'm going to get in a scrap, if it's for somebody who can't fight for themselves, let's go. Like, yep. game on. Let's bring it. Yep. Um, like, I don't give a shit what happens to me. And, and that's awesome. And, I'm, and I... You know, the, the group of people, like, that you guys have put together that are all fighting that fight together, man, it's, it's awesome. So, all right. So on that note, so we've taken it up into the mandate and I think that's a good spot to at least call it for now. Yeah. And then we'll kick it for the second part. So folks stick around for this one. Um, We're going to end up, this will be the, the, the end of the first half of this. We'll start the second half here uh, in a bit, but this will be, this is the end of part one. So Sonny, Save rounds or anything before no, we no just call save it. Rounds, no. All right, we'll, we'll add all the save rounds at the end. So, for part one, this is Sonny and Susan. Right here, folks. See ya.